Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, and welcome to Straight from the Horse Doctor's Mouth. I'm Justin Long, here with the horse doctor, Dr. Erica Latcher. Our goal with this podcast is to make the world a better place for horses by sharing Dr. Latcher's lifetime of experience as a horse owner and an equine veterinarian. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Justin Long. I'm here with the amazing horse doctor, Dr. Erica Latcher. Hello, Dr. Latcher. Hello, Justin Long. I'd like to take a moment and welcome all of our new listeners all over the place. Our stats map has been growing here lately. We've gotten a few new countries in Europe that I have never, ever would have expected to get to. So that's like I, I keep finding new things that excite me and astound me about this whole podcast thing. So, <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for listening and downloading and subscribing and making this the success that it is. We are grateful for your time and for your interest in making the world a better place for horses which is what we are trying to do. So this week we are going to talk about the amazing horse foot. And there is a lot that goes on in an amazing horse foot. There is a lot. And sometimes amazing is not the word we use to describe horse feet. (laughs) Well, it is a wonder of evolution for sure. That it is. (laughs) Somehow it has gone from, I don't even know where it would have started, but they're they're basically walking on one finger, right? They are. It would have started as a paw, kind of like what you see on one of your dogs or cats. Yeah, probably was better off back then. <laughs> well, they <laughs> lived in a different environment than where they evolved to have the one toe. Horses evolved in swamplands, basically. And so having multiple toes allowed you to walk across much spongier ground than what they eventually lived in, which was the steppes of like Mongolia, where you had big grasslands. When you were in swampland, you needed to be able to negotiate mushy, squishy areas and and muck, right? When the area changed and they went more toward grassland, then it was important that you could run fast to get away from your predators. And so the, the foot evolved to follow that. And so they went from having a couple of toes to just one. In the rainy season in Florida, I'm thinking they probably wish they could go back to the paw. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we know it's complex and has done a lot of things. So what what's going on inside of a foot? What are all the pieces in there and what do they do? Oh, there's a whole lot of pieces. We're going to keep it down to the basics. but yeah, yeah, don't get too complicated on me. There's basically the coffin bone is the bony portion that sits in there. Uh, that's the big bone that's in there. Behind that is the navicular bone. So the coffin bone is the equivalent of the last bone on your middle finger. So if you touch the tip of your middle finger, the bone in there would be the coffin bone on a horse's foot. Okay. Sitting right behind that is the navicular bone. And that is this uh, kind of this long skinny bone sits across the foot. And its purpose is that the deep digital flexor tendon, which comes down the back of the leg, curves around that navicular bone and hooks into the bottom of the coffin bone. And its job is to pull the coffin bone and actually pick the foot up off the ground. 
So as the horse is moving, the deep digital flexor tightens and tips the front of the foot forward, which picks the leg up and sends the horse moving forward. So you have the coffin bone, navicular bone, deep digital flexor, and then the lamina. The lamina are small but mighty. And lamina is the soft tissue that holds the coffin bone to the hoof wall on the outside. Oh, that's super important then. It is. So it is Velcro, essentially, that covers the entire coffin bone, top and bottom, and attaches to the corresponding Velcro on the hoof capsule. It's really short, like we can measure it in millimeters, but there's a lot of it. So that's what I mean by small and mighty. It's teeny tiny, but there's a whole lot of it all the way around. And its job is to help counteract the pull of the deep digital flexor. So the deep digital flexor is always pulling the coffin bone down, and the lamina is always pulling the coffin bone back towards the hoof wall. So it moves then, is that right? Yeah, it's, it's lamina a, moves? Yeah, lamina moves a little bit, not a lot. You know, it's a little bit like what holds your fingernail on your finger is also lamina. And so, you know, your fingernail isn't kind of stuck. It's not highly mobile, but you can bend it. You can do some moving around, wiggling of it, and it's not necessarily painful. And that's the same way that lamina works on a horse's foot. So that's a really precise motion that's taking place in there when all of those things, so they all have to work together just right in order they for do. it to work, right? Yes, they have to work very, very, very tightly together. I'm guessing that that's why the angles that we're talking about when we look at a properly trimmed hoof are so important then because you, you that's affecting the length of the tendon and how much movement you've got inside there and all that. Is that right? It's all huge. It's why conformation in horses is such a big deal. And there's tolerances, just like in any biological system, it can work within certain certain levels on one side or the other of normal. But one of the reasons that ideal has become what it is when you talk to people about conformation of horses is that the entire weight of that horse, especially in a canter stride, let's say the horse is on a right lead canter, the entire weight of that horse at some point is going to be coming down that right front leg and be balanced on that foot. And so you want the physics of that to be as optimum as possible to have long-term soundness. Right. And the foot, like it or not, is one of the weaker points in the whole scenario, probably because it's a way better plan to walk on three toes than one. But, you know, if you're running away from predators, one toe is a good plan. You can run really, really fast. So the physics of that are ideal when the weight comes straight down that leg and goes directly through the center of rotation of the coffin joint. Now that's something we can assess with x-rays and looking at the x-rays with a farrier and veterinarian, we can really look at the ideal place to put things on a horse. But when you look at the kind of held up ideal conformation for your average horse, it's because that puts that weight where it's supposed to be on a horse's foot. So that's coming straight down the foot. Next, we can look at what a farrier can affect on a month-to-month basis, or basically, you know, every time they trim. That's the length of the toe. So farriers can really impact how long that toe is. And again, this is something that's it's a little tough to explain over a podcast, but visually it's easy to see. But when you look at a horse's foot from the side, you'll see how far in front of them that hoof wall extends. And the closer that is to the tip of the coffin bone the better it is for breakover. Now, obviously we don't want it right out the tip of the coffin bone because that would have the coffin bone outside in the real world. But the ideal is somewhere around three quarters of an inch from the tip of the coffin bone to the very, very, very front of the hoof wall. 
that's not something that's easy to assess without an x-ray, but good farriers and veterinarians who have gotten some extra education on feet can look at them and there's some clues that the foot gives us to where those points are. That toe length affects how the deep digital flexor comes down and goes across the navicular bone. And so if the toe is longer, that usually means the heel is lower. And when the heel is lower, the deep digital flexor is pushing the navicular bone up into the coffin bone. And that causes bone-on-bone contact after a while. And that's going to lead to navicular syndrome, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But that's where having a farrier and a veterinarian that have a great relationship and you having a good relationship with your veterinarian, not that you've ever heard that before on this podcast, (laughs) but you having a good relationship with your veterinarian can say like, hey, something's going on with my horse. Does this seem reasonable? And you guys can evaluate the horse together and decide if there's something that needs to happen. You know, do we need to take x-rays? Do we need to meet with the farrier? Do we just need to tweak some things? You know, what do we need to do based on what you're feeling and seeing? Okay, so what exactly are we trying to achieve with a trim? When we're trimming horse feet, we're generally trying to take the foot back to closer to ideal. So over, you know, four, five, six, 10, 12 weeks, your horse's foot is going to grow and it will probably break off here and there, especially if you go too long between trims, but it may not break off evenly. So our goal when a farrier comes to do a trim is to take that foot back as close to ideal as we can get it for that horse, that confirmation, your environment, all those things. In the wild, horses don't get their feet trimmed, right? There's no farriers out there trimming the Mustangs. Right. (laughs) And that's because they are in areas where usually it's dry and rocky, and so the feet stay dry. They break their feet off. Uh, The other thing that happens when you're a Mustang is if you don't have good feet, you get eaten by a predator sooner. If you are a thoroughbred, as long as you run fast, you can have really bad feet and someone's going to take care of you. So for instance, Big Brown is notorious for having had bad feet. He was a thoroughbred that won the Kentucky Derby here in the United States. He did it with glue on shoes on because he had a quarter crack in his foot. He has notoriously bad feet. But if he was a Mustang, he never would have made it because something would have eaten him. But here he gets his feet taken care of and he gets to have lots of babies. So being a Mustang, you're bred for a better foot, better quality foot, and you tend to chip your foot up appropriately in a drier, rockier environment. So in Florida, we do not have a dry, rocky environment. And oftentimes we have a wet, moist environment, which leads to what we affectionately term pancake feet, where the foot really spreads. And so then we need the farrier to come in and kind of trim that spread so that the foot goes back to the way it's supposed to be. So some of it is environment. Some of it is the horse's inherent confirmation. You know, for instance, one of ours, Vespa, is a little bit what we call pigeon-toed. Her toes turn in confirmation-wise, and so she tends to want to push her foot to the inside and rotate her heel kind of under on the outside. So every time she gets trimmed, that gets addressed a little bit. She's one of those that probably wouldn't survive in the wild for a variety <laughs> of reasons, but... Um, you know, and we won't even go to Ernie, the thoroughbred, because he's ugh, he's he can't even live without a shoe on his right front foot. So <laughs> he definitely would have been eaten long ago. So each time she gets trimmed, we have to address the confirmation that she got. When do you need a shoe and what are we trying to accomplish with a shoe? I hear all the time that, oh, my farrier's just trying to put shoes on my horse because they want to make more money. And that's not true. I will tell you, every good farrier I've ever worked with does not want to put shoes on a horse until they need them. 
So there's a couple reasons why we would put shoes on them. One, for instance, Ernie has a disaster of a right front foot from a conformational standpoint. And without a shoe, he's not sound. He's not sound walking across soft footing without a shoe. Put a shoe on him and he's fine. He had a bad roll of the genetic dice and has a really bad right front foot. So he has to wear shoes to be comfortable. The more common reason we end up putting shoes on horses is that we are using them in an environment that is not necessarily one where a horse would normally work. You know, like when we go to like a WEG, for example, to use that, the World Equestrian Games that happened a few months ago in the United States, those horses were walking on a lot of concrete and, you know, they're not really designed for that. So you need to put shoes on them so that the feet can handle the level of friction that they're going to see and not get worn down to nubs. The next place we'll use shoes is if we are trying to change the mechanics of the foot to treat a disease. So we use shoes a lot with laminitis, for instance. We need to really do some big changes to how the foot handles weight, and the foot doesn't do that naturally. Like we put really big shifts in the mechanics with those shoes. It's like putting you in a platform high-heeled shoe, basically. We're going to change all of the mechanics, and we can't do that with just the plain foot that's there. If we want to look at certain tendon and ligament problems, we'll change the way the foot loads when it hits the ground, and we do that with a shoe. So those are the big three reasons we put a shoe on. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of shoes. There's steel shoes, there's aluminum shoes, there's glue-on shoes. Piper downstairs, I saw the last, well, last week when the farrier was here, got a plastic shoe glued on. How do you know what kind of a shoe is an appropriate kind of shoe for the situation? It's complicated. And you'll hear all kinds of things, and especially horse people being horse people, there's a lot of different opinions. But sure. And some of it is a, a cost-benefit ratio. So steel tends to be the cheapest, especially in the United States, for us to put on a horse. You know, all of ours are in steel shoes. They wear well. You can replace them on the foot a couple of times before you have to put new ones on. They give good support to the foot. You know, horses jumping over things, that isn't necessarily something they were designed to do as they come down. That shoe offers a little bit of support to the foot. And steel offers a a great combination of things. The one thing steel shoes do is sometimes they're a little bit heavier than people would like in classes where horses are judged on movement. So if you have, for instance, most of the stock horses, like the quarter horses, paints, Appaloosas, Hunters on the hunter-jumper circuit, those horses are very much judged on how flat their movement is. And so a lot of people will put aluminum shoes on those because they're lighter so that the horse doesn't want to pick up his foot as much. So that may be why you use an aluminum one. Glue-on we often use for horses who have really bad hoof wall and we need to put a shoe on them to keep them comfortable, but their hoof wall won't tolerate a nail being driven. So that's where we'll glue a shoe on. And the ones that Piper has on downstairs are a newer version of a a glue-on type shoe called a Polyflex. And what that is, is basically a little teeny tiny horseshoe. You know, it looks like a horseshoe, basically. And you just run a bead of glue on it and stick it to the bottom of her foot. And it has a lot of flex to it. So it's a little bit the best of both worlds. It's like her being barefoot with just a bit more support and minimizing how much she wears the foot. Let's move over to the things that go wrong. You mentioned laminitis, and, um, and you know, there's abscesses and white line and some of that kind of stuff. So how do those impact the foot? Let's start with laminitis. What's going on there? So we talked about the lamina and that it's the Velcro that holds the coffin bone to the hoof wall. 
in laminitis, the lamina gets inflamed because we like to put itis on the end of words for inflammation. (laughs) That's all the word really means is that the lamina is inflamed. There's different versions of it from I went and walked on concrete at a horse show all day and now my feet are sore, laminitis, which is very, very mild, to I got into the feed room and ate three bags of corn and now my feet want to fall off laminitis. The big problem that happens in laminitis that is clinically significant is that that Velcro starts to let go and the coffin bone, instead of sitting where it's supposed to in the hoof capsule, the toe of that coffin bone starts to rotate down. A couple of things happen when that happens. First off, if it gets too low, it's incredibly painful because now the bone is closer to the ground. It doesn't have as much cushion. It is also pinching lamina where it's rotating down. Normally that lamina had, you know, seven or eight millimeters, but all of a sudden it's only got two or three. And so that soft tissue gets pinched. In that process, there's a lot of disruption to blood flow in the area where all this is happening as well. So you get swelling and then the hoof capsule is hard. So you get swelling inside a hard hoof capsule and it has nowhere to go. So that's, that's the big problems that come from laminitis. Because the coffin bone is rotating down, we have to address it with changes in mechanics. And that is nearly always, like I would say like 99,999 times out of 100,000, that is going to involve a shoe. So how does a shoe impact all of that? Essentially what we do with the shoe is change the way the weight is coming down the leg and being transferred to the ground. So it, um, the mechanics of the foot get adjusted by a shoe so that we take the pressure off the lamina as much as we can. Okay, and that, that rotation of the bone will reverse and go back to where it's supposed to be? It will often, we can get it going the right direction. We have to fix all the other problems that are happening going on with the horse. But if we get those fixed, and we'll work on those while we're doing the mechanics as well. So if we get all of that fixed, we can get things back where they need to be. Okay. Abscesses. I've seen a lot of abscesses with you, and it's like a pocket of goo that's inside the hoof. How does that happen? It's great, isn't it? Well, I don't know if it's it's great. They're very rewarding. The horse doesn't think it's great. (laughs) The basic way that abscesses happen is that the hoof is opened up to bacteria. So, you know, the hoof wall forms this protective layer, but bacteria manage to get through a crack or a little poke or, you know, something along those lines, and bacteria get up into the area of the lamina, and then they, they have a party in there. They multiply and the body says, no, no, you you can't live here. And it makes pus, kills the bacteria, and then expels it out the foot. Slowly. Slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes painfully slowly for all involved. You know, it's it's always painful to the horse, but it's, we've had them go as long as three weeks trying to get them to come out of the hoof, you know, and it's, you, you just have to wait for everything to come together so that you can get it out of there. They're painful, without a doubt. We have three things that we say make a horse broken leg lame, one of them being a broken leg and the other being an abscess. So they can be incredibly painful for horses. You said three things, that's two. The third one is an infected synovial structure. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But they can be incredibly painful to horses. Luckily, they're usually very short-lived. I would tell you our typical one takes three to four days from the time we first notice the horse being a little bit iffy to the when we can get them opened up. Uh, we always recommend that owners call us 
and they usually do. I don't usually have a problem with people not calling us on abscesses, but call us and talk to us. And we have some strategies for soaking and managing their pain, those sorts of things. And in general, if an abscess happens every once in a while, that's being a horse that lives outside and interacts with the world. (laughs) If we have abscesses that are recurring, that can often be a sign of a bigger problem. And that's when we really recommend that we get your farrier and us together to shoot radiographs and see if something's going on inside that foot we need to address. Recurrent abscesses can often be the first sign of laminitis secondary to Cushing's PPID, insulin resistant, the metabolic laminitis, which is more of a low, slow burn than a sudden onset. But those laminitis is often the first thing we see are abscesses recurring. Now you soak the foot, you put the baby diaper on it and all that stuff. What is that doing to help it out? It's softening the foot so the body has an easy way to get that pus and bacteria out. In Florida in particular, one of the the ways that we commonly see abscesses is we get seven inches of rain in one day, like last week. (laughs) The foot gets really wet, and then all it takes is bacteria finding a little crevice through there, or maybe they step on a little twig, and, you know, that sort of inoculates it almost like a needle. You know, we do something that gets bacteria up into the hoof wall, and then The weather dries out again, so the hoof wall contracts up again. Now that bacteria is stuck in there, and it goes to town. Is there ever a situation when an abscess, if it's left untreated or something, can get worse and and do damage, or is it always going to work its way out? They can definitely cause damage. It's not common that they do, but they do sometimes, instead of coming out the hoof wall, they find an easier way in and they can actually cause a a bone infection in the coffin bone. So they're not something that we just brush off all the time. They don't come out in two or three days. We really start looking at what do we need to do here? Something's going on. You know, I've certainly had my fair share of abscesses that I needed to step up the treatment protocol. But typically we approach them the first time with, you know, the soaking and all the typical abscess treatments of soaking and and giving pain management. When things are not improving, that's when we start going to lots of radiographs, really evaluating with a farrier, you know, doing all the things we need to do to see how to get that abscess out of there. Okay, let's move on to white line. What happens with white line disease? White line is this really cool, not quite bacteria and not quite fungus that takes advantage of compromises to the junction between the hoof wall and the lamina. So there's a, an area, there's hoof wall, and then there's white line, and then there's lamina. And it's sort of this meet in the middle zone. And it's a little bit softer than the hoof wall. White line loves to get in there and, and eat away at it. It's an organism that likes what we call a microaerophilic environment, which means it likes a little bit of oxygen. It needs some but it doesn't like a lot of oxygen. So it likes damp, dark caves, which is what it creates in hoof walls. One of the big ways that we see white line get into feet, and this is by no means all of them, but it is a common way that we see white line invade, is that a toe is allowed to get too long. And when it does that, it stretches the lamina and the white line due to pressure. You know, the foot is constantly pushing out from the the coffin bone when you do that, and it causes a stretch. It's a physics problem, basically. When it does that, it it degrades the integrity of the white line, and the organism takes advantage of that. Now, some horses we see are just susceptible to it, and we think there's a genetic component to it. There's a company that's working on that right now called Edelon. They're doing some testing to see if there is a genetic component to white line susceptibility, but I'll tell you that's not all of them. 
because a lot of them we'll see have a foot that has gotten too long. We address that. We fix everything there. And then they don't have white line again. They're not repeat offenders. We just have to fix some things going on in the foot. Does white line affect horses and donkeys the same? Because I know we have a lot of donkeys with that problem. It's probably that the donkeys have a bigger genetic susceptibility to it than it is that it affects them differently. So white line is a pretty big deal then, right? It definitely can be. What we end up doing is a, a resection of the foot where we take the hoof wall off and we expose the white line underneath because the organism doesn't like a lot of air, right? Doesn't like a lot of oxygen. So we take the hoof wall off above it and then the air kills the organism. So if you don't do that, then it's just going to keep on going. It is very difficult to get white line under control without doing a resection. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Extremely difficult. All right. I think the other one that you mentioned that I want to talk about for a minute is navicular syndrome. This has about a million names. We'll call it caudal heel syndrome, caudal heel pain, navicular pain, pototrochlear apparatus syndrome. You know, it has it has a lot of names. Basically, it's the heel of the horse hurts. And when we talked about what's inside the hoof, there was the navicular bone. The navicular bone is held up by little tiny ligaments all around it. And if any one of those strains, it can be very difficult to get it to heal properly because horses are a disaster standing on one toe. Right. (laughs) And you can't get them off of that toe for any length of time for it to heal. We used to think when the only way we had to look at horse feet was radiographs and ultrasound that this was almost entirely a bony problem. With the advent of MRIs, where we can put horses in MRIs and really look at all of the soft tissue things that are going on in horse feet, we have learned that so many of these are either no bony component, there's just a problem with one of those little tiny ligaments or the deep digital flexor tendon, or they're a complicated combination of bone, tendon, and ligament problems. So we used to have this super simplistic, ah, this is navicular syndrome. And that's not the case anymore. It has gotten way more complicated. What I will say is that this, in particular, there is a genetic component to navicular syndrome in terms of, you know, horses born with certain foot conformation just from the physics of that foot conformation are going to put more stress on the navicular bone. But otherwise, I think in my not so humble opinion, this is a syndrome that we can do the most to prevent with good quality farriery. So how much of a factor is that kind of stuff when you're doing a pre-purchase on a horse? So when you look at the conformation of a horse and the condition that their hoof has been kept in up to that point, does the older it get, is it harder to fix some of that kind of stuff? Yes, it's a big deal. And we will often discuss with potential purchasers what the foot conformation is on a horse, what we see as a potential problem in the future with the horse, how the shoeing looks now. We can't necessarily, on a lot of these horses, we don't have any history on them. You know, they're not a horse that we've seen for years and years, so I don't know what the foot looked like before, but it is something that, based on what I see that day in a pre-purchase exam, I will absolutely discuss with an owner that, you know, I may not see anything right now on x-rays, but MRI is the gold standard to look inside the foot, and I, I see something that I don't love. How much are we looking at for an MRI ballpark? Around 2,200 to MRI, one area. So that's pretty serious. Yeah. There are some groups that are um, doing 
For instance, the referral hospital we use, Equine Medical Center of Ocala, they have a package that they do that's sort of a pre-purchase MRI where they'll look at some very specific things that can often be problems. So they don't do the... (laughs) Our horses are adding uh, to the soundtrack. They don't do a full MRI of the feet. They look at very specific things that are common problem areas. So that would be something if you had a high-performance horse you would probably want to do? Or is that (laughs) if you feel like you've got a high-performance horse that may have some problems that you would look at doing? That's a can of worms. It is. <laughs> I mean, um, I, I'm, the average person isn't going to just go, you know, spend that kind of money, yeah. right? No, probably not. And and I would say that one of the great things that has happened with MRIs is that a lot of these high-end horses do get a lot of MRIs in their lifetime to see what's going on with that foot. Is this something where we need to be prepared to just pull this horse out of competition for the next six months to a year or is it something where we're going to rest them for a month or so and they're going to go back? Because it changes a lot about how those horses live. You know, for some of them, for instance, it might be that the horse is currently in Europe, but it's based in the United States. You know, you're going to put it in an MRI and say, oh, well, it's done for six to eight months. Let's send it home and we can rest it at home as opposed to leaving right. it over here. Or, you know, no, we're just going to give it a month off here and we'll we'll kind of ship it home with the rest of them sort of thing. So... They, they do get more MRIs than your average bear. What that has done for us is given us a lot more knowledge about the foot. I'll be honest, we don't always know what to do with that knowledge. <laughs> you get a lot of information on an MRI, and we don't often know what to do with all that information. What it has done as well, though, is we can now say, all right, if we see a horse that does this, the chances are good. We've got normal radiographs on this horse. We've got something going on in these soft tissue structures. So we we have a better idea on some of these horses as to why we have treatment failures to normal treatment, why they don't respond to shoeing changes, you know, why some of that stuff happens. We have better answers from the MRIs out there on those. And there are times where I'll say, okay, we have done A, B, and C. If you want to know if this horse is going to come back, we're going to have to put it in an MRI. You know, and I, I can feel much more confident about that because of the MRIs that have been done on all the high-performance horses. The trickle-down effect. Everybody benefits from that in the long run. They really do. And there have been, you know, there have been some really surprising things that we've learned from MRIs in horses. And I think the level to which little teeny tiny lesions in the foot can take a horse down is one of the big things we've learned. Well, I think the big takeaway in all of this is that not only should you have a good relationship with your veterinarian, but you and your veterinarian and your farrier, all three need to have good relationships with one another to to really maintain your horse, especially if it's an athlete, but any horse, ultimately, it's a group effort. (laughs) It is. It is definitely a group effort. (laughs) It, It takes all of us at the table and not just for the athlete, but for the laminitic horse, for the white line disease horse, for the chronic abscess horse, for definitely the athlete. But in all of those situations, you need a team of a veterinarian and a farrier who have good conversations together. As we're wrapping up here, let's talk about just a basic approach to your average horse. What sort of attention needs to be paid to them on an annual basis? Well, as part of our wellness exam, when we look at horses, we evaluate the shoeing or trimming that they're getting. And based on that, we'll make recommendations about what needs to happen, or we'll tell you that everything looks great and we don't need to change anything. 
I do generally recommend that most horses have lateral, which is where we look at the foot from the side, lateral x-rays of the foot once a year. You know, if they're not doing much, maybe every two years. But the amount of information you get off of just that x-ray, it'll blow you away. You'll think that things look one way. And I mean, I've had great farriers look at those x-rays and be like, I had no idea that's what was happening in that foot based on what the foot was telling me. Right. So there's so much information your farrier can get from a set of radiographs once a year. All right. So there happens to be a very extensive blog on this topic. It's a two-parter, I think. Yes. Tony Uh, has blogged extensively on feet. Yeah. He has done everything that you need to know about horse feet blog on springhillequine.com. And I really would urge everyone to take a minute out of your day and go sit down and look at that on the computer. It's got great illustrations and pictures and diagrams along with all the stuff to really help you understand what a good foot is supposed to look like and some more in-depth stuff on what goes wrong on the inside when it's not taken care of. So, We also have a great diagram on there of what we look for when we're trimming a foot. So, you know, we start here, go to here, look at this. If these things are in line, then the chances are in your favor (laughs) that your horse's foot is going to be trimmed correctly. And those are, there's really good guidelines on that blog. Tony did a really good job with it. (laughs) Well, he does a good job with everything. It's what he does. (laughs) It's very thorough. Mostly he holds the counter down at the front desk. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that and every other topic in the world regarding horses can be found on springhillequine.com. Just click on the link in the menu that says Tuesdays with Tony. There's a lot of other great information on our website, too. So while you're there, go ahead and poke around and see what else you can find you didn't know that you needed to know. All right. Well, thank you so much for breaking all this down for us today, Dr. Lancer. I appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you soon. today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.